Good morning, everyone. Today, uh, the reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 through 40. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, but prophecy not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. If therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. And let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But let them be subject themselves, just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Let's pray. Lord, as we come together this morning to sit under teaching and to hear your word preached, Lord, I pray that we would have open ears and open hearts and open eyes to see what you are doing, Lord, uh, what you have revealed. Lord, and how we ought to uh, grow and mature because of it. Lord, uh, there are a great many interesting and wonderful things to see in this passage, Lord. Uh, some things that seem uh, normal to our ears, Lord. Some things that seem strange. Uh, but you are God who inspired all of it, Lord, who had it in this text for a reason, who preserved it for us to this day to see these things. Uh, Lord, even the things that seem strange to our experience, Lord, you're the God who made all that is. So I pray that we would humble ourselves before you uh, and be content to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Hey, Steve. This is uh, the second part of a two-part 
message on 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you missed last week, if you missed part one, you might have some questions today about, especially about the meaning of the word prophecy and the meaning of the word tongues, what those practices actually looked like. If so, I'd encourage you to go to communitybible.org slash sermons and you can, you can listen to that uh, message from last week or on our podcast. All of chapter 14 is about the God-given commission to every believer to make the building up of the church the overriding goal of our participation in the meeting of the church when we gather together to worship. Honoring that priority is how every single one of us honors God when we come together on Sunday mornings. We're going to look at a series of of things that Paul sets before us in verses 20 through 40 regarding what builds up the church. We've already seen some of that, but, but the rest of the chapter continues on that same focus. What builds up the church when we meet together? The first thing that he sets before us is that when we speak the word of God to one another, the church is built up in the meeting of the church. In verses 20 to 25, Paul continues the point already addressed in first half of the chapter, and that is the centrality of the Word of God in the building up of the church when we meet. In verse 20, Paul begins by appealing to the Corinthian saints to move on from childlike thinking and instead to be mature in their thinking. He uses the word thinking twice in that verse, and that that ties everything right back to what he said in the first half when he kept talking about the mind, the mind, the mind. His, his emphasis thus far has been on that which engages the mind of every believer in the congregation with the Word of God as the means by which we build one another up and build up the church when we meet together. The mature thinking that he exhorts here is that which makes the Word of the Cross the centerpiece of our corporate worship. I I should point out, I know there was a little bit of a question last time in minds of some when I camped out on that idea that what builds up the church when we meet is the Word. Uh, That doesn't mean that the other gifts that God has given to the body don't build up the body. But in the context of the meeting of the church, that which is central for building up the body is the Word. Okay? Throughout chapters 12 through 14, Paul has been addressing, among other things, the Corinthians' misplaced exaltation of the gift of tongues to the highest position among all of the spiritual gifts. He hinted at his challenge to that misguided hierarchy of spiritual gifts at the end of chapter 12, when he twice put tongues at the end of a list of gifts, and then concluded chapter 12 by saying, but pursue earnestly the greater gifts. In chapter 14, there's no hinting. He moves away from hinting and he cuts right to the chase. (laughs) He emphatically overturns the Corinthian church's wrong valuation of the role that speaking in tongues should play in the meetings of the gathered church when there is no one present to interpret the tongues so that all may be edified. And that qualification is very important. When there is no one present to interpret the tongues 
so that all may receive a word from God, then tongues don't have a place in the gathered community of the saints. It is the presence of an interpreter that moves tongue speaking into the same category as words of prophecy, teaching, revelation, knowledge. It is the interpretation of the tongues that causes tongue speaking to become yet another way that the Word of God is proclaimed when we gather together. Does that make sense? But the Corinthians were not in the habit of requiring any interpretation of, of tongues in the meeting of the church. Based on what Paul says here, in fact, it's, it's apparent that when the church in Corinth gathered, a lot of people in the congregation were speaking in tongues and not one at a time, but they were stepping on each other. They were, there were multiple people speaking in tongues without an interpreter at the same time. And, and so what you ended up with was layer upon layer of unintelligible speech. Like some churches today, the Corinthians saw that, that uncontrolled, unintelligible speech as a highly spiritual worship of God that transcended the mundane experience of talking to God or about God in understandable words. See, that's the big appeal for tongues that are not interpreted in the context of the corporate worship is that they are perceived by some who profess to believe in Christ as a transcendent, ecstatic, otherworldly experience of God. The problem is it's content-free worship. It's worship that puts a premium on personal, individual experience of God without any necessary component of the actual Word of God. Paul's Old Testament citation here in chapter 14, verse 21, is very illuminating in view of the misplaced priorities of the Corinthian saints. The passage from which Paul draws that verse is in a, it's in a passage that's all about God's rebuke and warning directed against the northern tribes of Israel for their persistent refusal to listen to the Word of God that was being delivered over and over through the prophets. It's a warning of impending captivity at the hands of the Assyrians, which was about to come upon them. In fact, it was already, start, it was already come, coming upon them as a judgment from God. Please listen as I read Isaiah 28, verses 9 through 13. To whom would God teach knowledge? And to whom would He interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, for order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line. A little here, a little there. Now if that sounds meaningless, that's because it's supposed to. Keep listening. Indeed, he will speak to his people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and said, here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. God's words there shame the Israelites for being like 
newly weaned babies who were too immature to receive true wisdom from God spoken through his prophets in intelligible words. Everything that God said to them, they treated as if it was gibberish. The, the words translated order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, are Hebrew monosyllables. Sab, lasab, sab, lasab, kav, lakav, kav, lakav. It's, it's, like, it's like babble. It's like baby talk. And it has no more meaning than baby talk. God warns that because the Israelites would not hear his word, he was going to speak to them through a people who spoke a foreign tongue. Once the Assyrians carried Israel away to a foreign land, his judgment, the judgment that came to them by the hand of God would surround them with gibberish. A foreign tongue completely unintelligible to them. Verse 12 of that passage is the most piercing. He who said to them, and this is God who said to them, here is rest. Give rest to the weary. Here is repose. But they would not listen. God's word to Israel through his faithful prophets had always been very, very gracious. If they had listened to him and submitted to him, they would have entered into marvelous rest. He would have protected them from every enemy. He would have blessed them in the land of promise. But the end of the verse says they would not listen. Paul's very strongly implied accusation against the Corinthians here in chapter 14 is that when they came together as a body to worship God, they were satisfying themselves with meaningless, unintelligible words. Words that, had, words that didn't even allow them to share anything together. Okay, But they were supposed to be worshiping God as one new man. They were using spiritual gifts in a manner that fragmented and confused the corporate worship rather than uniting the saints in worship. After citing that indictment from Isaiah 28, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.22, So then, tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, some of your translations have the words, it'll say prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers. But the for a sign part, it should be in italics if it's in your Bible, because it's not in the original. And it doesn't belong there. So stick with me. When Paul says that tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers... I'm convinced he's talking about God's purpose for tongues in a different context than the gathering of the church. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the fact that the disciples were heard by every individual in that very ethnically diverse crowd that had gathered in Jerusalem for the festival was a powerful sign by which God attested to his message and to his messengers, the disciples. Do you know what signs and wonders are for throughout the Bible? They are God's way of attesting to the legitimacy of his message and his messengers, including the messenger who is the message, Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 20 of John's Gospel, John said, therefore, many other signs 
Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. God's purpose toward unbelievers through signs and wonders done by Jesus was to turn them from unbelief to belief. So here Paul says, tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but for unbelievers. I believe his point is that when tongues are employed by God for a sign, it's unbelievers who benefit from that sign. But in the meeting of the church, beloved, that's not the purpose of tongues. When tongues are spoken in the meeting of the church, their purpose is supposed to be the same as that of all the other spiritual gifts through which the Holy Spirit builds up the church through the Word of God. Tongues don't get to be the exception to that rule that Paul has been focused on this whole chapter. In fact, chapter 13 is about the same thing. Paul goes on to say, but prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Prophecy presented in the gathering of the church does not match up with the biblical purpose for signs and wonders. As Paul said earlier in this chapter, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation, just as was the case with the Old Testament prophets. Whatever is spoken or sung or prayed at the gathering of the church must have intelligible content that draws all of the believer's attention to the Word of God. It is that Word that edifies, exhorts, and encourages every believer who is assembled together with other believers. At the same time, at the same time that it pierces the hearts of unbelievers and unchurched who come into our midst. Paul goes on to say, listen to this, verse 23, If therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and unchurched men or unbelievers, and I, you, some of your translations say ungifted men, that's, yeah. the, the word is, the word is idiotes, it's those who don't get the idea, okay? The, it's, it's unchurched, it's people who walk in and they don't know what's going on, okay? So, if therefore the whole church should assemble together and speak in tongues and unchurched men or unbelievers enter, will they, will they not say that you are all mad? Crazy? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an unchurched man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, laid bare. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Isn't that great? If several believers, or God forbid, all believers at the gathering of the local church began speaking in tongues at the same time with no interpreter, an unbeliever or an outsider who came to that meeting would conclude that we're all crazy. But if several believers in the church prophesy, speaking words of edification, exhortation, and consolation, which is what Paul said prophecy does earlier in the chapter, Paul says that the unbeliever, the outsider who comes to that meeting will be convicted by all, called to account by all, laid bare, and will fall on his face and recognize that God is among these people. 
That reminds me of another New Testament passage that laid bare thing. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. 412 is well known. 13 is important in its attachment to verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And listen to the next verse. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What is it that pierces the hearts of sinful men, exposes us as sinners, lays us bare before the eyes of God and makes us fall on our face in the presence of God. It is not an ecstatic personal encounter that switches off the mind and speaks unintelligible words. It is the living and active Word of God that does that miraculous work in the hearts of sinners, including, I should say, redeemed sinners like me. That is why Paul places such preeminent value on the Word of God residing richly in the hearts of every believer when we come together so that we speak and we sing and we pray in keeping with the Word. He says in Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, and with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. All right, so the first thing that builds up the church when we meet together is when we speak the Word of God to one another. The second thing is when we are orderly and unselfish. In verse 26, in keeping with what Paul just said about the centrality of the Word and the meaning of the church, every one of the contributions to that meaning that Paul mentions is a content-based, a word-based contribution. He says, What then, brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. Every man who speaks in the meeting is to speak the truth of God, not in unintelligible words. If tongues are spoken, it must only be when one with the gift to interpret those tongues is present, so that all may be edified and not just the one speaking in tongues. I know I'm saying that over and over. That's because Paul says it over and over. Everything else that Paul then goes on to say in verses 27 to 33 is about maintaining order in the way each of those contributions to the meeting is presented. The central exhortation in those verses is not be orderly, that's part of it, but the central exhortation is be unselfish. Don't make it about you. The engine of godliness in the meeting of the church is the same as the engine of godliness in every other context. It is love. Love for God and love for the brethren and love for the lost. In Romans 12.10, Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That command to give preference to one another in honor, it means I must decrease that you may increase. It means, it means and that's of course what John the Baptist said about Jesus, but that's what God commands us to do toward each other. I need to take, my well-being has to take a back seat to yours. 
My honor has to take a back seat to yours. In fact, my opportunity to stand up in the worship needs to take a back seat to yours. Love is more mindful of the other person's well-being than of its own. But again, there's another dimension here that many of us have possibly never even considered. Love places a greater priority on the other person's contribution to the meeting of the church than on its own contribution. As one dear brother in this body said when we discussed the sermon this week, hear this, guys. His desire when he has something that he would like to share with this body when we come together is that he would first pray, Lord, bring something better for the body than what I have. And then that he would wait on the Lord for a little while to see if he might bring that about. Now, if you rarely, if ever, get up, you're probably not the one that needs to, to, to keep sitting. It'd be good for you to get up here every now and then. But the problem, see, we are hypersensitive about periods of silence. We're worried that visitors will think nobody here is excited enough to get up and share anything about the Lord. But our greater concern, beloved, should be that each of us displays loving and humble preference to one another. Sometimes, and especially if we're in the habit of speaking often, that means that we must sit quietly even when God has put something on our heart. The two men who are my great examples of this are Bob Deffenbaugh and David Dean. There is never a time, those, those two men's minds are constantly, they are constantly in the Word, they always have something to share. But, they, but most of the time, they don't get up. They humbly sit and let other people share. That's intentional. Now, stay with me. Paul says, verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at most three, and at each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. And let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. And, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. I'm going to come back to that in a second. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Verse 32 is exceedingly important here, guys. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. I believe that verse is very often misunderstood and thus misapplied. Because verse 29 says, let two or three prophets speak and then let others pass judgment, Many conclude that verse 32 is continuing that theme and that it's saying that those who speak a prophetic word in the meeting of the church are to have their words assessed by others with the same gift, by other prophets. But by the time you get to verse 32, Paul has already moved on past that issue of assessing what is said in the word of a, of a prophet, the word of prophecy. He's moved on to another matter to a different exhortation. And that exhortation is that those who prophesy must not step on each other in the meeting of the church. I'm convinced that Thomas Schreiner's commentary captures the meaning of verse 32 well, and it's, in a, it's a hugely important point. Schreiner says, some might object that the Pauline instructions here cannot be carried out 
Since those under the control of the Spirit are swept away by the Spirit, if they are constrained to prophesy, they must do so. And I should add, I've heard that assertion many times in this church, and I've made that assertion before. I was swept away by the Spirit. I couldn't do anything but get up. I didn't have any choice in the matter. Schreiner explains why that approach violates Paul's instruction. He believes the NIV gets verse 32 exactly right, and I agree. It says, and the spirits of, the, of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. He's talking about self-control. Self-control. Paul's saying that when a brother with the gift of prophecy speaks in the meeting of the church, that same brother has the God-given ability and the God-given responsibility to apply self-control in the exercise of that gift. Schreiner says, listen to this, spiritual gifts then do not take possession of people such that they are compelled to speak in tongues or to prophesy. The spiritual gifts are under the control of those with the gifts. And they can stop using the gifts at any time. Life in the Spirit, he goes on, he says, life in the Spirit is not chaotic and disorderly. Vibrancy in the worship and order in the worship are not enemies but friends. And the gifts can be controlled since God himself is not a God of disorder, chaos and confusion, but of peace and order, end quote. This actually matches up perfectly with Paul's specific instruction in these verses. When he says two or at most three men can speak in tongues in, in one meeting if there's an interpreter, and two or at most three prophets can speak, and then others will assess what they've said to see if it matches up with God's Word, just like the Bereans did with the Apostle Paul. The assumption in those instructions is that the Holy Spirit gives each man the ability and responsibility to choose not to speak if doing so would create disorder in the meeting or violate love for another brother in Christ. You with me? Beloved, the fact that I feel compelled to speak in the meeting of the church is not the determining factor in whether I should or should not speak. Every man to whom the Holy Spirit has given something worthy of saying to the body has also been given control over his own spirit by the Spirit who gave him that thing that's worthy of saying. That which must guide my decision either to speak or not to speak and how long to speak if I do and how often to speak is that I must build up the church and I must give preference to my brothers rather than to myself. Self-denying, sacrificial love Governs all of this. It governs everything that we do when we come together. Guys, that's why chapter 13 is right between chapter 12 and chapter 14. If I say, and I'm deliberately pointing at myself because I have violated this, if I say, even though we're running late, and I know I'm stepping on the time designated by the elders for fellowship, in other words, if I'm being disorderly, or if I say, even though I've already gotten up twice in the last three weeks, or if I say, mm, I know that what I, said, what I said to the body has no real connection to the theme or passage that the worship opener chose for this morning's call to worship, but I was swept away by the Holy Spirit. 
I had no choice but to get up and say what I said. If I hadn't said what I said, I would be quenching the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. If I say any of those things, beloved, what I'm really saying is that if you have the audacity to challenge my decision to get up and say whatever it was that I said, you're questioning the Holy Spirit. Where does that leave you? I'll tell you where it leaves me. It leaves me unaccountable to you. Paul does challenge me if I say any of those things. In fact, he gets right in my face. If any of those are my justification for willfully disregarding the schedule or for leaving no opportunity for others to speak or for creating confusion by launching into something that has no connection with the theme that unifies our worship that morning, the Apostle Paul gets right in my face and he tells me I don't get to blame that on the Holy Spirit. Because that's not how the Holy Spirit does things when the saints gather together to worship. The Holy Spirit is all about Love and unity in the body of Christ. Not disunity and chaos. Think about this for a moment. If all of us are heeding Paul's exhortation in Colossians 3.16 to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us, that means every man who comes to this meeting every Sunday will have something on his heart from God's word that's worth sharing with the body. But 90 plus percent of the men who attend on any given Sunday cannot have the opportunity to share that worthy word with the body. We don't have that much time. And if I'm one of that 90 plus percent, that's supposed to be just fine with me. Are you guys with me here? I have been every bit as guilty of violating this as anyone else here. And beloved, I've had to be corrected by brothers that love me. And I probably will again. So I'm not speaking from the moral high ground. We all need to give priority to humble, sacrificial, self-denying love and God-honoring order when we come together. The first thing in the meeting of the church that builds up the church is when we speak the Word of God to one another. The second thing is, is when we are orderly and when we are unselfish. The third thing that in the meeting of the church that builds up the church is when we honor God's design for headship. And here's where I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> Verses 34 to 38 of 1 Corinthians 14 comprise one of the, one of the constant flashpoints in the Bible because of what Paul says about women being silent in the meeting of the church. But I have to say Paul is both clear and forceful in these verses. The only two verses here that directly address women are verses 34 and 35. Let the women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves just as the law also, also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own men at home for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now the reason I said their own men is because if we're going to translate the word that can mean either woman or wife as woman, we shouldn't translate the word that can mean either man or husband as husband. And I believe this, this exhortation absolutely applies to all women in the meaning of the body. In fact, it would make very little sense if, if it, was, it says you can only speak if you're single. 
Three times in two verses, Paul says unequivocally that women are prohibited from speaking in church. And that means in the meeting of the church because this whole chapter is part of a section that started in chapter eleven seventeen and continues to the end of chapter 14 about what happens when we gather together. In verse 35, when Paul says it is improper for a woman to speak in church, the word he uses there for, that we translate improper is much stronger than that. It means shameful. It means disgraceful. Now, I know I'm contradicting many excellent preachers and authors when I say this, but I find nothing in these verses that indicates that Paul is limiting God's forceful prohibition against women speaking in the, in the meeting of the church to one particular aspect of that meeting. He has already moved on from the topic of passing judgment on a prophetic word that is spoken in the meeting. And it would make zero sense to shoehorn Paul's words into that limited context because of what he says he's talking about in verse 35, which is if a woman desires to learn anything from what has been said in the meeting. That verse is not about whether a woman gets to render a thumbs up or a thumbs down on the legitimacy of a prophetic word spoken in the meeting. It's about the proper context for a woman to ask questions if she doesn't understand something that took place in the meeting. This does not mean that there aren't women in the body who know a whole lot more than most of the men about the Bible. I know a bunch of them in this church that do. But, beloved, how can it be shameful for a woman to ask a question out loud during the worship, but not shameful for a woman to correct a man during the worship? This is about, this, is, this means what it says. Let a woman keep silent in the meeting. And many consider our policy at CBC to be far too restrictive. And of course, taking Paul's words in verses 34 and 35 at face value is certainly not the path to building a megachurch in the 21st century. But the elders of this church have no interest in accommodating cultural expectations or even popular evangelical expectations at the expense of a clear and forceful biblical mandate. When God declares in His Word a prohibition that is as direct, repeated, and unambiguous as this, we will not treat it as if it is an option instead of a command. And Paul gives us more than ample evidence to conclude that that was his own take on the words he just wrote in verses 34 and 35. Because in the very next verse, without skipping a beat, the next thing he says to the Corinthians after saying women must keep silent in the church is, was it from you that the word of God first went forth or has it come to you only? He doesn't beat around the bush at all. He leaves zero wiggle room. Paul knew very well what kind of response his words were going to receive on the part of these liberty-loving Christian, Christians in Corinth. It's pretty much the same response that those words generally still receive today. So he immediately follows up what he knows would be the, his most unpopular instruction from this passage with a piercing question. Did the word of God come from you or was it given to you? And then he adds, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. No wiggle room. 
And he says, but if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul had no problem asserting his apostolic authority when the need arose. And that need was front and center right here. And beloved, it still is. It still is. Stick with me another couple of minutes. Uh, several years ago, I read that a survey, a survey done by Barner Research Group had discovered that the, the divorce rate among professing evangelical Christians is actually higher than among the general population. After I read that, I thumbed through our current church directory and a few older church directories and tried to come up with the number of divorces I had witnessed among couples that had worshipped regularly with this body for more than a few years. I came up with two. I've been part of this community for more than 35 years and I still know of two. It doesn't mean I didn't miss some. It does mean that the statistic doesn't match. I'm certainly not saying that all the marriages represented in this body are trouble-free. What I am saying is that the crash and burn rate of marriages in this congregation bears no resemblance to that of the world or even of professing evangelical Christians. Why is that? I'm absolutely convinced that this is at least one reason that this body of believers radically breaks the rules when it comes to the success of its marriages. And that is that men who are the heads of households in this local body learn very soon after they set foot in one of our worship meetings that they are accountable to God to know His Word well enough to stand up here and edify the church from His Word when we come together to worship our great God and Savior. And women know very soon after they come into fellowship with us that it's the men who are accountable for that task. That pattern, that God-sourced expectation carries over into the family life of every couple in this body because it displays in the meeting of the church the very same design for headship and submission that God commands in every married household, the very same design that God put in place when He first created man in His image as male and female. God is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman by God's gracious design. In the last two verses, Paul wraps up four chapters of exhortations regarding how we handle the meeting of the church by restating his exhortation to do all things properly and in an orderly manner. Orderly means in a manner that doesn't create confusion and chaos, but displays the love of Christ. And every facet of the church's experience together as one. Properly means in a manner that gives priority to the building up of the church in love through the proclamation of the Word of God. The shared proclamation. Jesus is our one and only chief shepherd. We're just cheap. Let's do church His way, not our way. As we wrap up, uh, I, I want to say just a few words about why we do certain specific things here at CBC. I think I've said as much as needs to be said about why women are not permitted to speak in the meeting of the church, but we do not prohibit women from speaking or praying at ministry group meetings, Bible studies, and other gatherings of the saints. We do not prohibit women from teaching women or from teaching children below middle school age. 
even if there are boys in that mix. In fact, we strongly encourage all of the above. I should add that that threshold middle school age, that's not sacred. That's just what the elders have determined. We have prayer, the elders have prayerfully arrived at these policies out of an earnest desire to honor what God has said to his churches on these matters, his church. We also allow women to participate in our music teams during the worship meeting and when we sing together at the beginning of the teaching hour, just as we allow women to join in all of our congregational singing together with the men. On occasion, the husband of a woman, or she may ask some other man in the congregation to share something that she wrote as a personal testimony of God's faithfulness in her life. But the men in the body are accountable agents when it comes to what is said in the meeting. Paul started his concluding section of his instructions regarding the meeting of the church by exhorting us not to be children in our thinking. But there's another sense in which we should be children, in which we should be like newly weaned children. And that is in our childlike trust of all that God commands and provides. My dear sister Sharon pointed out that Psalm 131 is marvelously fitting when it comes to the heart of what Paul is calling every believer here to do. That very short psalm, three verses, says this, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Dear Father, we ask you to give every one of us the humility to receive these instructions and exhortations, not reluctantly or begrudgingly, but gratefully, joyfully, believing that all that you require of us as your beloved children is good and gracious. May our worship of you every time we gather be a soothing aroma to you and a mighty witness to all who come and join us. And finally, Lord, we ask that you would bless our time of fellowship together after this meeting over a meal that you have graciously provided to us through the, the loving hands of many women in this body, maybe a few men too. And we pray, Lord, that you would be honored in all that we say and do. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.